Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett. And my name is Brian Colbert Kennedy. Mm-hmm. And this is science for people who give a shit. That's right. We give you the tools that you need to fight for a better future for everyone. The context straight from the smartest people on earth. My God, these people are smart. And mm. the action steps that you can take to support them. It's wild that they keep talking to us, these people. I'll never get it. Nope. Um, those people are scientists, doctors, uh, journalists, engineers, professors, policymakers, educators, CEOs, the whole, the whole shebang, even a record. Holy cow. Uh, Mm -hmm. oh, this is your friendly reminder that you can send questions, thoughts, and feedback to us on Twitter at importantnotimp or email us at questions at importantnotimportant.com. You can also join tens of thousands of other smart people and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. That's right. Uh, This week, getting a little nerdy, Brian. Pretty excited about that. Something you either don't think about in your everyday life or you think about all of the time for a variety of reasons. We are talking about the past, the present, (laughs) and the future of government IT infrastructure. Wow. Brian, don't laugh. It could save your life one day, my friend. Of course. I'm sorry for laughing. If it hasn't already. Um, Tell them about our guest. Well, our guest is Anish Chopra, and Mm -hmm. he's the first and former CTO of the United States. Mm -hmm. Little company Uh, you might have heard of. You may have heard of it, uh, and Mm -hmm. has a better perspective on on this than uh, probably anybody on on our planet. That's right. That's right. He's done enormous work uh, inside the machine, outside the machine, partnering with the machine, partnering outside of the machine uh, for so long, and helps us really understand how these things work, what has gone down when they haven't worked and why, and uh, and where we're headed, which is some pretty exciting places. So uh, many thanks to Anish for coming on the show. And uh, yeah, let's go talk to him. Let's listen to him. Our guest today is Anish Chopra. And together we're digging into questions like, why does the government seem so compelled to run on Windows 95? Uh, and for you young folks, we'll we'll let you know what that means uh, soon enough. Anish, welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> absolutely, man. Absolutely. Remember Windows ninety five? That was wild. Oh, uh, Anish, <laughs> you, you you joke, but that the operating system on my uh, computer when I walked into the uh, the White House, uh, really, I couldn't access social. I couldn't access LinkedIn. I couldn't access social media the browser was so uh, old and unsupporting of any of the modern uh, software as a service products. So you joke, but it was actually, <laughs> that was my life on day one. Oh, I mean, I'm sure. We're going to wow, get into that. Yeah. <clears throat> How is that possible needs to be uh, answered. Um, okay. Very exciting. Um, Anish. <laughs> well, three years into our podcast, Brian just downloaded the Slack app this week. It's so, so helpful. Everything's yeah, it's going fantastic. Great. Yeah. Progress so is so weird. Okay. Uh, Anish, could you tell uh, our listeners uh, who you are and what you do? Sure. So uh, the name's Anish Chopra, and I served as President Obama's Chief Technology Officer. It was a role uh, he created, and I had the honor and privilege of serving as our nation's first. Uh, I, prior to that, was Virginia's Secretary of Technology, a relatively new role. Uh, I served as the fourth Secretary of Technology in Governor Kane's cabinet. And today I run a company called Care Journey, whose mission is to enable consumers through organizations they trust to help them better navigate the system to find higher value care. Um, I, it's weird that that has to exist because our system is so cut and dry and, and simple. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> We're going to get into all of wow. it, I hope. Yes. Oh, yeah, That's absolutely. Incredible. That's incredible. Absolutely. Quick reminder for everyone, uh, uh, our goal on this show is to uh, provide some 
context for our, our question uh, today or our topic uh, uh, at hand. And then we'll dig into action-oriented questions and what everybody uh, out there can do about what's going on. All right, let's dive. Let us dive. Uh, let's do this thing. So Anish, uh, we do like to start with one important question to set the tone for this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of asking for your entire life story, we like to ask Anish, why are you vital to the survival of the species? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I think we take a great deal of humility on that question. So I'm sure. gonna, you know, I am not. Uh, but the role I wish to play uh, is a bit of a translator between the public sector and the private sector. And to me, I believe that remains the most under-leveraged interface if you're in the business of solving problems. So uh, I, I am of the view that there is a bipartisan, now generational consensus to modernize our society. The premise is that part of the work shall be done by government. We'll have a political debate about how much of it should be done by the government. Part of that work shall be done by the private sector, and there'll be a political debate about how much. But if we optimized the interface, regardless of what percentage of the problem is solved by whichever side, there will always be a handoff. So optimizing the handshakes and handoffs is about the core mission objective I hope to cover today. And maybe I'll be relevant in some form or fashion to shine light on an area that people don't know much about. Um, that sounds so logical. That makes so much sense. Very strange. <laughs> well, we appreciate it because I, I do think, you know, we cover everything from climate to clean energy to cancer to healthcare to, uh, you know, black maternal health outcomes, AI, all of these things. But, you know, one of the goals with, with the show is to really take a deep dive into an issue that is affecting everyone right now, but also something that despite our community and our listeners being, you know, fairly progressive and action-oriented and, and, and nerdy to a respect, you know, there's still some things that are difficult to wrap your head around if you're not yes. in them. And, and things like public IT infrastructure is one of those that's very, yes. very, very easy to complain about, and understandably so in a lot of ways. But to, to fully understand the, the why of the way it is, is something I want to try to illustrate for folks uh, so that we can kind of get there. Um, awesome. Well, thank you for being so honest about that. I appreciate it. So one of the things, uh, again, we want to dive into is, is sort of the, the IT infrastructure, the public and private partnerships, uh, why infrastructure is the way it is, who is behind it, um, what, uh, those partnerships on either side can make us vulnerable to, uh, and what it's holding us back from. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And I'm happy to dive in uh, right at the deep end of the pool. So we'll start <laughs> wherever you want to start. I'll, maybe I'll just set a couple of facts to sort of set the stage. Yeah. Let's do it. Number one, the U.S. government is probably the single largest customer of IT. It now is approaching $100 billion of information technology investments. And probably a quarter of that would be infrastructure. Okay. And then three quarters of the rest would be some form of services, applications, and so forth. Now, uh, like any uh, large organization, you often have a bit of historical legacy infrastructure where you've paved the way by being amongst the first to buy computing machines and then not the most nimble in upgrading them. Uh, you might find a pretty healthy uh, uh, constraint on uh, adapting purchasing patterns to the new times. 
So you might have uh, procurements that still say we need Windows 95 uh, circa 2020. <laughs> I'm saying that as a joke, but it may, sure. be, it may be part of the DNA of our procurement process. Um, just to give you a little bit of a flavor for that, and we probably will go a little bit deeper as one of the case studies and failures, but here's an interesting point. The healthcare.gov portal that crashed uh, early in the, uh, obviously uh, very tragically so, uh, in 2013, the procurement on which the contractor was hired to do the job actually was was signed in 2007. Whoa. Interesting. Well, no, no, no. But let's just take a second. When did the Affordable Care Act get signed into law? 2010. Mm-hmm. You might be asking an obvious question. How do you purchase IT for something that did not even exist in law three mm-hmm. years early? And you get a little bit of the window as to the challenges we face. Many of our large, disruptive, agile, modern technology investments are enabled by essentially a moat that says, we're going to limit the number of people who can bid on these future unknown projects. So we're going to only invite a handful of people who are even available for us to have a conversation about building up what we need, because otherwise it'll be too organizationally complicated. So only a half a dozen companies responded to this general statement. We don't know what we're building or with what intention, what the complexity looks like. We want general technology companies at the ready who can, on the turn of a dime, respond to our requirements so we can get moving. Not an unreasonable concept, but when you fast forward to the assignment, which is to build the largest shopping portal for healthcare insurance, you would think that the idea someone would have experience building online shopping portals might have been a top priority. And no, in fact, it was not. And so you have this challenge where uh, the procurement was 2007. And by the time the requirements came after the law was signed, the agency just turned to whomever was available. And you saw the tragic outcomes, which is they had to listen to every detailed requirement. Maybe they argue the government didn't spell out every feature and function. And that disconnect leads to a lot of finger pointing. And that's the state of what is essentially a terrible trail of billion dollar IT failures, one after the other, after the other. And it often has its root cause in the failure of procurement. And we'll get into all of this as we dive in. That's a helpful example. And I feel like, you know, like you said, that's the tip of the iceberg, but it is, seems to be for better or worse, the, the most obvious example for people to, to kind of grasp onto as we try to illustrate this problem, because it is, you know, arguably the the most famous and impactful one uh, on the consumer end. I feel like at this point, and um, I do want to tell you there's a corollary please. positive story, but I don't. I can hold that for later. But I'll defer to you. But yeah, I'm, no, for sure. I am not a Debbie Downer. We're going to be talking about lifting up and solving yes. problems. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's balance the two as we discuss today. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So if you could actually. Um, Take a step back for me. And could you, uh, again, you were the first to do this job for the U.S. Could you tell us a little bit about how it was advertised to you and what it actually was while you were there, this role of the CTO for the United States at that point when so much technology was changing and et cetera, et cetera? Well, it's a little bit of a, 
I'm going to share the immediate answer, but I'll, you'll understand that it, oh, you're not what I thought you were. So let me, sure. let me, let me do a little bit of the history. Having served as Virginia's Secretary of Technology, think of it as the minor leagues to the national level major leagues. Okay. Sure. So there are only a half a dozen states at most that had a role like this. Historically, and I think this is true of corporate America, IT was seen as an overhead function, maybe reporting up through a CFO or a chief operating officer. It's sort of a, what do you want it to do? You want the systems to work, you want it to be cost-effective, and and you want to have, to some degree, a very clear set of security and liability management processes. It's not a very complicated uh, function. It's basically just do your job. If I call you to get a printer in my office, I don't want to lecture about why I'm moving to digital and we shouldn't be printing paper anymore. Buy me the printer and leave me alone. Okay. Sure. So, so let's understand that what the governor of Virginia did actually a Republican governor. So this is a bipartisan concept, a Republican governor, a few years earlier than my arrival had said, we wanted to build a brand message that Virginia was an internet capital of the world. We happened to have an epicenter for internet traffic. And so there was a branding around, you know, the, 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 the start your business in Virginia, we'll plug you into the internet global highway, et cetera. So we created a secretary of technology position, which aired a bit more on the evangelizing the state to recruit startups and big businesses focused on tech. So it had almost very little to do with fixing IT and procurement, okay? It was largely a marketing function. Governor Warner, who succeeded Governor Gilmore, the Republican, now a Democrat, Governor Warner says, ah, I wanna fix government procurement. And he decides to shift the focus and make the role a little bit like exclusively focused on modernizing. And he sets apart this 10 billion, 10 year, $2 billion procurement to modernize the system in one fell swoop. Big idea, happy to talk about it. Governor Kane came in with what I refer to as a Goldilocks model, and it was what led me to take the U.S. role. Governor Kane said, yeah, I appreciate the marketing role. We can't give it up. Keep going. I appreciate the oversight of our IT infrastructure. Keep it going. But my main objective is I want to solve problems. Sure. And I care about health, the environment, our educational system, and to some degree, our, we had a transportation crisis. We have a very acute problem. I want to, I want to get people moving in the roads. So what I want is a technology secretary who will partner and collaborate with my experts in these other domains Mm -hmm. so that when they go about policy making, we are harnessing the full power and potential of the technology data and innovation ecosystem, which may not be their main understanding, but maybe you can be the translator in chief and collaborator to bring that muscle in. That's my native, my my native culture is, is, is collaboration. And so I love this role. And I basically verbally, proverbially hugged (laughs) every cabinet member and said, how can I help? So I fast forward to President Obama. He actually forged a relationship with Governor Kane. There was rumor that he was a finalist to be vice president. So around that time, the New York Times ran a deep study about what what would an Obama administration look like? And, And the reporter said, look to Virginia as an operating model. And Virginia had found a way to go from back of the pack to front of the pack on economic growth per capita. We educated everybody. We had a lot of accolades. And an itty-bitty bullet in there was that we also were best-managed state. And best-managed state, in large part, was because of our use of information, as it was graded by one of the magazines that score these things. And so when President Obama uh, was building up his transition team, 
they asked if I could serve on it. And one of the assignments was to help draft the job description of a future chief technology officer. And it had a lot more to do with that Goldilocks role of bringing these muscles to bear on the bigger problems of our day, less about managing the procurement cycle and the servers Mm -hmm. and the cost effectiveness. We would appoint a CIO. I happened to be my best friend, Vivek Kundra, who was excellent CIO who kind of had that domain. We partnered on uh, everything, as you might imagine, we finished each other's sentences, but there was an inside baseball, outside baseball dimension. And infrastructure was at the center because I couldn't do external collaboration without a well-performing infrastructure. And we'll get into some of that, but that's how I became uh, in the role was drafting the job description, waiting for some Silicon Valley luminary to take on the assignment and lo and behold, the phone call came and said, I think we decided we're going to go with the minor leagues up to the major. You've <laughs> been experienced in this place. We don't want to create an unnecessary distraction in the middle of the economic, uh, as you remember, we were in the middle of an economic crisis sure. to teach people how to write policy. Like, you know, the tech, you know, policymaking, just do it at a bigger scale. And that's the assignment I was handed. Incredible. Fascinating. And how did that, and we can dig into the details, but I guess briefly, how did that measure up to what you were expecting in the job description uh, that was put together? Well, you know, I'm a nobody. Okay, hey. who am I to ask what the expect? The White House? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I take this role, and like, I don't know. I'm thinking I'm going to be sitting in a room and writing words and like, you know, tr- you know, crafting memos. Lo and behold, I'm named to the senior staff. Right. You called it assistant to the president and chief technology officer. The assistant to the president title means that you show up every morning, 8.30 a.m. in the Roosevelt room of the West Wing. You walk into this uh, building and you're just like pinching yourself like, oh, my God, this is like the most important place on planet Earth. (laughs) And around the table during a daily huddle led by the chief of staff that then Rahm Emanuel would be like every single person you see on the TV news. Right. It's it's Larry Summers and Tim Geithner. Sure, sure. It's Peter Orzag. It's everybody. And you. <laughs> and who the heck am I? On what planet Earth do I need to be in this room? Okay. I have nothing to contribute on the big problems of our day, but I listen very carefully to see, oh, you're working on this. Let me huddle with you. Let me try this suggestion to this problem. And I really uh, enjoyed the opportunity to react in the moment to the challenges to bring a little bit of judgment and then to hopefully manage some partnership opportunities that could be uh, exemplars to the president that were moving the needle here. And some of them were these colossal failures, like systems breaking, like we couldn't get veterans their GI Bill benefits and sitting homeless waiting for their stipend to go to graduate school. I mean, just frustrating things happen, broke broken operations. So we would dive into these like periodic problems. Uh, but really, it was about the policies around moving up the infrastructure, opening up the infrastructure, updating and opening up our, our, our government infrastructure, which we'll spend more time on. That was the part that was what I was hoping it would be substantively, but just the whole pop, the whole concept of being in this room uh, at that level where the president would point out whenever he had cabinet meetings that these sort of modernization efforts were important to him. 
that was a fascinating leadership dynamic. You can't force that by law. You can't demand all presidents pay attention to the technology. That's mm. something that President Obama was personally passionate about. Not that I was like bothering with his time on these issues. This is something he just innately had passion for. And, and we tried to move the machinery so that his vision could be brought forward. The notion of a bottom-up change army we solve problems from outside of Washington in, not inside Washington out. And that mm -hmm. culture of bottom up, uh, uh, you know, kind of power to the people, if you will, in the digital era, big part of the agenda. And it seems like I remember the kerfuffle of him get really refusing to part with his his black, his BlackBerry <laughs> when he moved in and thinking that like you, when we talk about, you know, it's not just these, these, the procurement and the infrastructure stuff, it's going like, okay, but no, but how do we modernize these things? And, and this thing is like the very tip of the iceberg going like, this should be, obviously it needs to be as secure as it, as it can be, uh, oh. which, which speaks for a lot of things, but, but this should be an option. You know, we're clearly you, moving into a new uh, age. One of my funniest moments in the, you know, in the West Wing is a skiff, it's a secure facility. So you can't, you can't really bring connected devices per mm -hmm. se. And I remember vividly when the iPad uh, first came to market, it was during mm -hmm. that uh, first term in the Obama administration. I remember uh, one of the generals coming in just for one of the meetings in the security room and all that, you know, uh, he's just sort of with an iPad. I'm like, hmm, this, is, this, is the, this is a device that would, you know, it, it's connected to all the networks. It could expose things. Was, oh, don't you worry. I had DARPA, which is the R&D arm of the military, sure. strip all of these features. So I basically have a brick of an iPad, it doesn't actually <laughs> right. but I have the iPad and it's a great vehicle to take notes. So he was very proud. And then all of a sudden I started seeing more of these things popping up and I'm like, what is this? This is the funniest thing ever. But anyway, uh, you're right. Uh, there is a symbolic role sure. where the leaders want to use these tools to do their job. And to my point earlier, we, we literally couldn't touch any social media site from the government. And some of them, obviously, frivolous ones, you know, social networks of the personal variety. But sure. frankly, there were many of how do we get more people to comment on regulations that would imp impact uh, Black mm -hmm. farmers? Sure. And, and why, not, why, why only limit it to the PhD lobbyists in D.C. that only know how to read the minutia? Why can't we open up this information so widely distributed knowledge allows us to get feedback? So we tried to bring some of these technologies to bear in the running of the government, especially these White House functions like regulatory uh, reform, uh, one of the most uh, boring topics, I suppose, for your listeners. But uh, Cass Sunstein, who ran OIRA, the department in the White House that oversaw mm -hmm. uh, economically significant regulations, he was a champion of thinking about transparency and public participation in very new ways leveraging these technologies to get more of the people's voice into the judgments of government. I Hell think yeah. that was terrific. So I imagine that in a lot of ways, in some ways, a lot of things have changed in, in those 10 years. But at the same time, I imagine the friction between, and we'll get to the public-private part in a, in a second, but the friction between wanting to move forward, but recognizing like that things like procurement and legacy code and code bloat and things like that, or just policies were, were something that held back those, those efforts to, to move forward and not just on Blackberries or iPads or whatever it may be, but yep. transparent open source data and, and such. How much is that? Do you, was that for you, uh, 
an obstacle? And, and how much do you imagine that is still something people contend with? Look, on the surface, you can give me a hundred reasons why we can't do something. Sure. And then and 95 out of the hundred of those may be this. We don't even know what was written 14 years ago when someone wrote the program. There's no documentation, blah, blah, blah. For sure, every meeting began with no and here's why. Yeah. And I heard that every time I walked into the room. And But I believe in MacGyver. And so when you find the right leader who believes in the vision, you can MacGyver your way through a lot. Sure. And just give you one small example. Uh, uh, Dave Capos, who ran our patent and trademark office, was a committed open government leader and said, I want to take this library of patent information and I want to expose it to the world. Of course, oh, it's on vacuum tubes from the 19 whatevers <laughs> and like, there's no way to do this, blah, blah, blah. So Dave had a really clever idea. What if I put out a $0 procurement? No money. You <laughs> have to figure out a way to extract the data from our vaults in the off hours, 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. or something, whatever the off right. hours were. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, you can't keep this information. For the privilege of doing this annoying work, you have to disclose the results to the public. We got 14 companies competing hmm. on a $0 liberate the patent wow. data. And I think Google Patents ultimately won. And they put thoughtful engineers on the task of figuring out how to scrape that information with political cover. We were able to liberate that data. Now, if you go to Google Patents, you can see everything, right? My sure. dad's got three patents. It's fun to Google his name and boom, pops it right up. So that is an example of MacGyver style. Mm-hmm. You know, but again, those are cute little sidecar. You've got to fix the underlying systems to be better. But a lot of it is culture and believing that you can make progress and then pushing forward. That's what, That was the 10-year the, the story is that both Trump administration and Obama administration, and for sure in the Biden team, there's this commitment to do this uh, uh, as, a, as a culture change moving forward. Yeah, I mean, it's it seems like we're, look, we're in any situation, in any, I mean, in uh, I'm a solo entrepreneur in this and a screenwriter, and I'm constantly dealing with, you know, I'm pretty ruthless about the software I use, but at the same time, there's always things that I just don't have time to deal with that I have to rely on that we have to move forward. To say nothing, of of millions of people employed by federal government or or state governments or or even lower local and municipalities and um, I think that became very obvious to folks uh, obviously in healthcare.gov and suffering through that and then bringing on um, you know sort of this this strike team of the of the U.S. digital service um, but that was obviously really evident to people in the past year as local governments and cities and in some senses, eventually regions or states um, tried to build um, uh, testing portals and yep. also places to sign up for vaccines. And yes, I think, I think it's about all of it. Yep. Yeah, because I think it's very easy. And again, this is where I really want to paint a picture again, not in a negative way, but any like this is how the, the sausage is made way of why state governments uh, with not always, but usually, especially something like this with the best intentions tried to build something that was operable and helpful for people and city governments tried to build things and why that is constantly so difficult in a moment 
like now when all the world is focused on making it work. So you are onto a very important subject as it relates to infrastructure. And it'll be the transition, I think, to, um, I hope, the hope, more hopeful side of this, okay? Yeah, of course. So nouns versus verbs. There are investments in technology where I need a thing and it's got to do a job. I need sure. a website for everyone in my state to be able to see all available appointments right now to find the one and link out the way I do with kayak right. to get a reasonable fare on my uh, plane. Okay, now I got to build this thing. The power and the big aha moment for me while I was in government and I continue to advocate it, advocate it for it now is that what we really need is a connection a set of verbs. Mm-hmm. I want information to flow. And while some of this information is held by the government, the vast majority of it is actually held by the private sector. Mm. And we have a, a U.S. policy framework of standards making, standards development that calls for industry consensus. Mm. So who's got the vaccine in my state? I've got hospitals that are distributing vaccine and they have electronic health record systems, privately financed, operated locally. Sure. Pharmacies, privately financed, operated locally. Uh, you know, to the to some degree, the public health mass vax systems, and then so what if there was a standard that would allow each and every one of those sites to publish their underlying availability data and made it open so that anyone, a state government or a dot com, could incorporate that to ensure I get access to the information I want? One of the biggest aha moments for me was in the Kane administration, I got a briefing from a friend of mine, Shailesh Rao, who was working at the time at Google. And he said, you know, Anish, something like 60, 70% of the website traffic to a government website on Virginia, you know, take your website pick, actually comes through Google. And oh, by the way, uh, we we, we don't have the ability to access all of your underlying data. So we don't actually optimize that search experience. If all we did was insert this sitemap protocol for any document you wish to be made publicly available, don't make humans know the URL (laughs) to go find it, put the underlying information out. We'll prioritize it in search results because it's a trusted source of information. We spent, you know, maybe an hour per website to get the webmasters to load the sitemap protocol. Our site traffic went up like 40%. Wow. Hmm. Uh, after we we tagged everything. And, sure. and, and the reality is, what's the unit of measurement? The unit of measurement is, do I have the information I need to get better care for my loved ones? And so sure. we're in the middle of recording this uh, uh, episode where proverbially you wouldn't know the dates and times, but just know that recently all the major uh, pharmacies with support from the U.S. government had basically quietly developed what's called the smart scheduling links of of an internet-based API standard Mm -hmm. for disclosing scheduling slots. And so we don't have to argue, did contractor A working for state B do a better job than contractor C in state Z? What we want to say is, or how many of the source systems have disclosed their slots in an open, reusable format? So there can be many versions. And that actually is the segue to healthcare.gov. The day healthcare.gov crashed, Three or four other private sites, including usnews.com, were live 
they were able to go into the underlying databases to say, what are the available uh, health plans you could buy? And you couldn't, for lots of technical reasons at the time, you couldn't go all the way to get your tax credits and finish the shopping experience without having the healthcare.gov system actually Mm -hmm. work. So that piece didn't quite work out. But as of today, there are dozens, if not hundreds of uh, web brokers, online brokers, health insurance companies who now have tapped the underlying APIs. So even if the website healthcare.gov crashes, you can still calculate tax credits, shop for plans on a growing marketplace of alternatives. And that's the move from nouns to verbs. Wow. I love that. I mean, there's not, APIs are are really what hold the internet together and make it as functional as it can be. And I love you use the word flow, which is like it's it's it shouldn't be this static experience. And it's it's what enables it's what enables, um, you know, I mean, you look at companies like uh, Plaid, the new one that the fintech company that ties every banking app together. Right. And and that's the reason you can get your banking data on on Mint or any of these other uh-huh. things or at your bank or you can send money to this and this. Trick question. <laughs> What's the role of government and Plaid? That's a really great question. I don't know the answer. I know, but Anish, I'll let, I'll let you tell. <laughs> well, in, in Dodd-Frank, which is the uh, re- big financial overhaul bill, sure, yeah, we included a provision that said functional requirement, the bank's operating checking accounts must enable consumer application access to their data. Did not know that was in Dodd-Frank. That's amazing. And here's the best part. Did the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau ever write the regulation explaining in detail how you're supposed to do this? I assume (laughs) no. Well, you're right. And the reason it didn't was the industry self-organized and Mm. solutions like Plaid and its competitors scaled over the last five years. Now, I'm not trying to say the government made Plaid. That's probably a ridiculous overstatement. Sure. It created a regulatory foundation of functional requirement on which the private sector built products and services to help accomplish. And and as, as luck would have it, I remember the day I had left the government, but I remember Uh, Jamie Dimon famously cut off Mint.com one day and declared that there was a cybersecurity risk. And by the way, he wasn't wrong. Mm. Mint was using these screen scraping tools where it was pre-plat, if you will, where you you basically store your username and password. And and they couldn't tell the difference between a hacker uh, and a a real customer using Mint. So uh, they cut it off. And I remember Richard Cordray, the regulator, said, dude, I haven't finalized these regs. You fix this. And within 90 days, Jamie Dimon switched to the OFX API standard, which is the technology stack that um, basically is open source for anyone to reuse. And that now is the bedrock for how you can open up uh, OAuth-based transactions to third parties. So to me, it's a great example of the role of public-private partnerships, nudging, directing, infrastructure, is banking infrastructure? Yes. Mm-hmm. Are we going to argue whether Federal Reserve's IT systems are efficient or not? That's a right. Sure. Shouldn't I get access to my data? Let's standardize and sure. boom, off we go. So <laughs> I'm dying to ask and find out where that layer is for electronic health records 10 years in. But before, 
before we get there, I do want to talk about one thing that is is in league with this, which is this this you know in this public private partnership, any any IT anywhere can be exposed at some level, and there was some news that came out uh, in the election season, so it hasn't been talked much about a very large hack uh, around uh, a piece of software uh, called a uh, part of SolarWind, essentially, where Microsoft was exposed, and it seems like every department of the government. Could you just take a pause and talk us through what happened there, why, and how we can make, again, like sometimes you got to go back and clean up the mess before we can keep pushing forward. But how does something like that happen and why does it happen before we get into, hey, how do we make uh, APIs for all the electronic health records everywhere? Yeah, these are exceptional questions. So let let me me rewind the tape. Let me do cybersecurity, then we'll go into healthcare. Yeah. So one of the most chilling uh, briefings I ever had was from the military that classified cybersecurity as asymmetrical warfare. The idea that you only have to attack with a few hundred lines of code Mm. and the defender has to presume, anticipate every permutation to protect against the systems. Sure. Now... What we decided to do, broadly speaking, was tackle this as a public-private partnership. And it really was a risk framework. Almost everything in life is a risk-reward trade-off. Sure. So the irony of SolarWind is that the very reason it was vulnerable is the very reason we were pushing for cybersecurity, meaning you should be monitoring your traffic mm-hmm. on your network. In fact, the U.S. government's been updating its traffic monitoring capabilities as well. So you should be looking for for behavior because assuming there is a hack, you can maybe mitigate the threat by identifying it early and then knocking out the port or doing whatever the case may be. So uh, I don't know much. Uh, Obviously, I haven't been read in on the classified side, but I'm going to tell you the layman's view is that one of the issues when you deploy these monitoring technologies is how do you update the software? One of the big questions with, say, I don't know, Tesla. Okay, I don't own one, but let's assume I dream to have one at some point. So say you want to get the latest software release from Tesla. Well, you got to know that the the code that's being shipped over the air is going to land in Tesla. The device is going to have to know, my car, that it's coming from a trusted source, accept it, and then run. One of the reasons why we have not opened up our voting machines to these over-the-air software upgrades is because of the very thing that happened at SolarWind. If someone compromises along the way, so it's perceived to be trusted, mm-hmm. and it allows you, it just instead of uh, the word hack is a fascinating one. I would imagine from a SolarWind perspective, it was walking through the front <laughs> door. Sure. Oh, this is a normal upgrade, huh. and I'm just going to load the software upgrade like I do all the time. And it'll just sit there and be ready for attack because I'm mistakenly... And everything comes down to human error, right? Someone left open a port where trusted code could have been manipulated and shipped over as trusted code. So we have a lot of work to do when it comes to the the, uh, traffic, you know, how information will flow. Now, what's interesting about this is that uh, that is where, forget APIs... That's just like internal enterprise software risks for sure. cybersecurity. Right. It's an orthogonal link to the medical records conundrum. The medical records conundrum is actually different. 
And there's a lot of economic interests for whatever reason that are leveraging this security risk, which is a broad risk, independent of whether I open up an API port or not. It's a broad mm-hmm. risk because my whole enterprise infrastructure is, you know, any over-the-air upgrade could create a hole and people could take data. So what happened was we had to make a couple of decisions. We put $35 billion into electronic health records. We said, we're going to subsidize legacy on-prem software, hopefully work with the technology companies as we roll the program out over a decade so that we would transition towards cloud-based, internet-based sharing. That was like the dream. Now, at least from my perspective, it was the dream because I knew early there was a provocative paper written by Ken Mandelin and Zach Kahane at Harvard. Why don't we have an iPhone app store for healthcare? That came out late 2008. I was uh, you know, susceptible to that argument anyway, but it was great to have it written. Sure. So we put $15 million of R&D and they created this, they sort of helped to create an internet-based safe, secure standard for shared data. Here's the key. To do data sharing APIs, you got to have two things, an open data model so that the connector on the other end doesn't have to subscribe to your secret rules. Mm-hmm. That's where you get all the business conflict. And you got to have the uh, query language so that information can respond to a, a you can you can establish the the query and the response in a consistent way that you could plug into anyone's uh, socket. We have been on a painfully long journey to map the tens of thousands of custom designed healthcare data models yeah. in every doctor office mm-hmm. at every hospital led by some proprietary vendor. Often the same vendor has multiple data models. So you've got this pervasive fragmentation. So the big lift over the last decade was to start small and incrementally add common data model mm-hmm. mappings. Mm-hmm. So everyone's converting their data. Even before you share it, you got to convert it. And only now, between now and call it December of 2022, there's been this final push from Congress in the uh, 21st Century Cures Act that we need to have open APIs so that payers, providers, doctors, patients, everyone can communicate in an open way. So the key question you asked me about security, yes, there's always enterprise security risk, but Mm -hmm. as it relates to the specifics of API management, it's frankly more secure than patient portals. Hmm. When a human is logging into a website, you can't really tell the difference between a hacker or the real me, you try to with, oh, tell me you're, you know, you're, t- I'm texting you a number and two right. is, is this a fire hydrant? Yep. We have all these ways, but fundamentally that remains uh, a, a, ra- a race, a competitive race to, to break the systems. What APIs do, unlike a website portal, I'm authenticating the endpoint mm-hmm. that's taking the data. So even if it's Anish Chopra authorizing the connection from application one to source two, both have to be trusted and registered on the network. So it's more secure than a human accessible database. So doctors are logging in, patients are logging in. It's more secure for machines to log in to track who they are and what they're doing. Are they within the approved use? So I think of APIs in healthcare as opening up the data while locking it down. That's my opinion. I think it makes a lot of sense, but it's, I mean, I feel like anyone who's been to a doctor's office can understand at least the very superficial level that 
And, and I, I remember seeing somewhere that like, you know, 80% of healthcare records are text-based and text-based, so much of that was handwriting for so long. How do we do OCR on that? How do we do standardization of the questions and the answers? How do we, you know, there's so much legwork that had to be done over the past decade. So again, this is what we try to illustrate for folks is when people are like, well, why isn't everything electronic <laughs> health records? It's like, you're, 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 you're not doing the, the legwork to understand the immense amount of truly like manual labor that goes into making things standardized before you can even do APIs and things like that. And the thing that you should know back to regulations is now we're put, because the government funds almost half of the budget in healthcare, we're using the power of the purse to push the standardization last mile. So we've got technology vendors responding, sure. and we've got doctors and hospitals reacting, and the payment system is going to reward this proverbial dream that we can organize this information that's fragmented to find obvious low-hanging fruit. Anish, if you only did this, you'd get healthier and cost the system less money. Sure. And if everybody got that advice for every step of their journey, by the way, that's why I have a company called Care Journey. I want to provide that benchmarking. People like you actually do these three things well if they make if they live a better life. You're only doing one of those three. Do this and this and this to get there. Pick these doctors for your condition. Uh, make sure you get these services. Basic things. If we just did the recipe for all of us to stay healthy, man, we would save uh, a trillion dollars of healthcare burden. That's the wow. theory. That's the that's the big rock we're all trying to move societally. So why, I mean, why besides everything you've illustrated over this conversation, but talk to me about Care Journey. How does that get started? And what are the, you know, fundamental in the sense of like, what can you, what can you do for me? What are the fundamental problems that Care Journey is working on for individual people, but also the healthcare system in general? Yeah. F finding high value doctors that are caring for you and the conditions you're in is kind of the base. But let me start with the big picture. Please. In the Affordable Care Act, we had obviously the big, big, big publicly known enchilada to move was uh, we're going to expand access to the uninsured, namely the young and poor who don't have uh, employer-based coverage. Mm -hmm. That was the big news. But there's actually a pretty significant part of the care delivery transformation in the Affordable Care Act. Part of it was, let's tweak the payment system so we're going to reward doctors who deliver better care. That's like a, an incentives economics play. Mm. But the other piece was the data play. We agreed to release Medicare data for the purposes of measuring the performance of the system. That was in law. Okay. Think about it. Every single Medicare patient leaves a receipt for every time they go to the doctor and for what reason. Most of that information is stored mostly for back end, like back to government infrastructure. It's, sure. This primary function is to pay doctors for the claim. But the secondary benefit is if you could look at all of that, that data, you could figure out for a hand problem, the best hand surgeon in Chicago is X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. Now, the best you and I know of how to find the best hand surgeon is we may have a friend who's got a friend who's got a friend that knows doctors. And so I mean, that's the that's 99% of the time, right? It is. Or you go to like Yelp reviews yep. and you think about how people are you know, spamming, oh, this doctor is horrible. This person's yeah. great. Where's the objective data-driven information to say, this person did 75 hand surgeries last year on people like you and their outcomes were this relative to the neighbors down the street. You can choose to do this, that, or the other. We, we don't know the price. You know, the society's got all these, you know, secret society prices. That's walls are coming down there too. 
but at a minimum on basic questions of who treats people like me and how well do they treat people like me relative to the others. The answers to this question are in an open government database. Care Journey applied for a research license to be able to tap that very sensitive data. We're one of a Mm. half a dozen companies that are privately financed to do this. And our business model is to conduct these objective reviews using open algorithms to measure value and to compare doctors in a five-star rating engine. And then we disseminate those findings to members who chip in an annual fee to get access and use it. So some use it to educate their uh, primary care doctors, who should they refer to? Others use it to say, I'm going to take risk in a given market. I'm going to pick Dr. Smith to be the anchor of my network. And I'm hoping, we haven't gotten there yet, people are going to build next generation find a doc websites where they'll be powered by a value-based ratings engine instead of sort by last name and sort (laughs) by specialty. It can be sort by value. And we would love to be that open scoring system akin to FICO scores on high value healthcare. That's really the dream. And we're growing. We got 90 some odd members. We got 75 people. We've had a great year despite the tragedy of the pandemic. So we're we're really doubling down on the vision. I love it. And, and, you know, there's so much, for lack of a better word, unsexy work to be done that can save lives, improve lives, but also make the system on a hyper-local level, but also a national level for things like Medicare, Medicaid, so much cheaper and have so much more value and be so much more affordable for everyone. And I, you know, last night when I was looking through Care Journey, I looked at, uh, read through the the stuff on the ET3 model. Oh uh, yes. Well, so I'm I'm I have a particular uh, affiliation for this. My one of my very good friends uh, works for a research research hospital in Southwest Virginia, and his entire job is figuring out how to make people come to the emergency room less and how to make people, st- uh, how, how to, they're literally about to start a trial where uh, ambulances take people somewhere else other than oh. the emergency room, which is and, a primary care doctor or an urgent care, whatever it might be. Partnership. Exactly. Way, is that Valid Health? I don't know if you want to name it, but that's... Uh, I'll, I'll leave it out for now, but it's not, but... Yeah, yeah, or, or, or there's only a few options, so clearly yeah. clinic, whatever, but who knows who it is? Let's just say whomever it is. Yeah. The theory is... That is a public-private partnership. Sure. I call 911, I'm calling the government. Who can help predict the nature of my condition and the best intervention for me? And, and so there is a role of government. There's a role of data and innovation so that the health system in question is thinking about this. Sure. And uh, anyway, so you get the idea. That's what, And think about what this means for American competitiveness. With our GDP increasingly... Uh, consumed by healthcare data, healthcare costs, we are unable to compete with China for the jobs and industries of the future. Sure. And each dollar we're in excess that we pay in healthcare for weaker outcomes is a tax on our innovation capacity. So the more we can wrangle out the inefficiencies, and we've got to do it in the uniquely American public-private partnership way, we don't want to have a big battle over putting doctors on salary and you know cutting their revenue by half. And we could do those draconian things if we had to make the budget work, but we've got to innovate our way through it, especially when we know it's feasible. Avoiding those unnecessary ambulance visits for something that can be treated at an urgent care or at home sure. or with your primary care doc, 
What a savings. It's almost a half of three quarters of a billion dollars in Medicare alone. For, for everyone. I mean, everyone is terrified when they get that emergency room bill. You feel good when you're in the hands and they're paying attention to you until you get the bill later. When, like you said, so much of that can be done in urgent care, even a primary care doctor. I mean, it's it's just a massive difference. And as long as we're still saving the same amount of lives and people are feeling better and we're saving money, I mean, it could be a game changer. So uh, on that note, what is next? Yeah, I, I know you got to roll. So so if you have two or three minutes, whatever you have, tell me what is next for you guys? What like wh where are we where are people actually in the sense of they wrote this week, you know, uh, one of our heroes in climate change, Dr. Leah Stokes, was giving a talk on, on TV and said, look, good politics is is passing policies that actually affect people's lives. What is that for healthcare in these public-private partnerships? What's coming? To me, I think there'll be a whole new business line called a health information fiduciary that layers around the system as complex as it is today. And its business model will be that you authorize it uh, with access to the information that you can aggregate. You will get guidance on what decisions to make and any of the efficiencies gained from what would have happened if you were in the traditional fragmented system towards this better system where you're running more effectively, you're rewarded for that arbitrage. That is the business model known as value-based care and particularly consumer-designated value-based care networks. That is the health information fiduciary. That is the entity that I believe a doctor network could stand up, a health plan could stand up, Walmart, Walgreens could stand up, there are many places that wish to serve and compete on trust to help you make relatively straightforward decisions that actually is in your best interest, not the sponsor of the ad on TV to buy drug X that may not actually be sure. in your best interest relative to the alternative. So that's the, the muscle we need in the healthcare economy. And all we at Care Journey want to do is to fuel those fiduciaries with the decision support and benchmarks they need to, to be more successful at what they do. So we'd, we'd like to be the intel inside for health information fiduciaries. That's the basic principle. That's a pretty great 90s reference, the intel inside. <laughs> yes, the, the, the stick, <laughs> sticker was on everything. Uh, well, listen, we, we know you got a role. We really appreciate you taking us through this today. I, I feel like you, you, you and the folks that have been working on this for so long have put in so much time and bandwidth over the past 10 years to get us to a place where we can start to unlock some of these incredible things. And people will, will be able to hopefully soon really appreciate what that work has meant uh, because they will see that value in their life. Amen. Well, listen, thank you so much, Anish. We really guys. appreciate Thanks, the time. That was incredible. Uh, and, Have a great day, guys. I'm late. Keep it up. For, uh, thank you guys thank so you. much. Get out of here, please, Have of course. One. Take care. Thanks so yeah. much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks to our incredible guest today, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Uh, just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, 
rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. <laughs> and you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.